Leonora Carrington is 23 years old, living in a convent in Spain. When two doctors arrive and tell her to get in the car, it's 1940. Fascists have overrun much of Europe. Freedom is in retreat. And Carrington has become convinced that all of Europe's troubles, all the hate and pain and repression, has accumulated inside her. And she's been chosen to shoulder this burden and somehow dissolve it. Carrington has been wandering Madrid in torn clothing, constantly throwing up and taking cold baths, one after another. And now these doctors have arrived to take her away. They say they're taking her to the seaside town of San Sebastian. Their son and surf. It's going to be okay. Just get in the car. So, she does. But the car isn't going to San Sebastian. She's drugged and handed over. Like a cadaver, she would later say to a psychiatric clinic in the nearby town of Santander, a place with a garden and fruit trees, a place where wealthy people, like her parents, send relatives who have become embarrassing. When she wakes up, she finds that her hands and feet are bound to a bed with straps of leather, She's pinned to the bed for days, lying in sweat and urine as mosquitoes attack her. And then a doctor brings his black bag to her bedside. Are you going to be a good girl? He asks. And then everything goes dark. Over the next few months, Carrington is given three treatments with a drug called cardiazole which induces an epileptic fit and sometimes side effects, like a dislocated jaw, a spinal fracture, hallucinations, heart attacks. Carrington convulses until she feels defeated, ready to die. I was sinking down into a well, she would write. The bottom of that well was the stopping of my mind for all eternity and the essence of utter anguish. Before she's released, Carrington draws a map of the clinic. She draws the park around it. She draws the fruit trees. And then in the center of the map, she draws a horse rearing up on its hind legs its head flung back, its front legs kicking the air, its mouth open in exclamation. It could be in pain or in battle. In any case, soon it will rise up and leave and never look back. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. 
The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of an artist on the run, from her family, from her station, from a world at war. A story of how far we have to go sometimes, just to find ourselves. I'm Tim Gearing. Leonora Carrington grows up in an English country manor with ten servants, a nanny, and a name, Crookie Hall. Her family calls her Prim, which is aspirational. Carrington is sent to one boarding school after another, none of which seem to do anything for her, and neither does she do much for them. When she's asked to leave one of these schools, the nuns who run the place tell her family, this girl will collaborate with neither work nor play. Nonetheless, when she's 17 years old, Carrington is presented at court. The Lord Chamberlain is commanded by their majesties, says the invitation, to summon Mrs. Harold Carrington and Miss Leonora Carrington to an evening presentation party at Buckingham Palace on 29 March 1935 from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. And so, she has a dress made with the proper neckline and a train that hangs exactly two and a half yards off the shoulder. She takes lessons in exactly how to curtsy to the queen. She piles her black hair on her head and places a tiara on top, decorated with exactly three ostrich feathers off to one side. Well, three years later, Carrington would write about being a debutante, a short story called The Debutante. About a girl who feels more at home with animals than people like her, Carrington has always identified with animals, real and imagined. When she was younger, she wrote a story called Animals of a Different Planet. That's planet, P-L-A-N-I-T. Filled with made-up places like the Sea of Sagoon and made-up creatures like the Heriptus. In the debutante story, her mother announces a ball in her honor and she arranges for a hyena to go in her place. The hyena disguises itself by killing the family maid and stretching the maid's face over her own. And everything seems to be going fine. The hyena is enjoying itself in the ballroom until the hyena begins to worry that everyone can see through its disguise. And it shouts, So I smell a bit strong. What? Well, 
I don't eat cakes. And then it tears off its face and leaps out the window. Carrington leaps through the window, as it were, just one year after her debut at court. Her family agrees to send her to art school in London. And soon she's drawn to exhibitions of surrealist art, and she loves it. Especially a work called Two Children Are Threatened by a Nightingale, a small collage of a beautiful day with a nightmarish scene. One girl unconscious on the ground, another being carried off by a faceless man, and a third waving a knife at a bird flying off. And apparently, not so nice Nightingale. Carrington thinks, I get this. I know what this is about. A kind of world between worlds, the world of dreams and imagination. And so, one night in June 1937, she makes sure to be at a dinner party with the artist. The party is at the apartment of a man named Erno Goldfinger. Yes, the inspiration for James Bond's nemesis. It's warm. The windows are open to London. And soon enough, they meet. Carrington and the artist, Max Ernst. Ernst is German, 26 years older, basically penniless, and married. But in that moment, Ernst and Carrington both have empty glasses, and Mr. Goldfinger pours champagne in them until they're about to bubble over, and Ernst sticks his finger in the swelling liquid, and Carrington sees this and does the same. Many years later, Ernst would remember this as an encounter that had upon both parties an instantaneous and irresistible effect. Well, Carrington's father tries to have Ernst arrested because his art is pornographic, supposedly. It's not, really. So, after a few weeks together in London, the lovers hide out in Cornwall by the sea, with a changing cast of surrealist artists like Man Ray and Lee Miller. And for Carrington, this summer of fun and sex and art is proof that she was right to jump out the window. There's something else out there besides money and status and rules. And so, at the end of the summer, she takes the train to her family's new, even bigger country house called Hazelwood Hall. And she tells her father that she's going to Paris with Ernst. Prim, he says. That's preposterous. Come back to the life you are destined to lead. Or I'll cut off the money. I'll cut you out of the family. Come back now 
or don't come back at all. And she says, okay, fine. I won't be coming back. She never sees her father again. Now, Carrington isn't really running off to be with Ernst, right? I mean, she adores him. And he adores her. At least as much as he adored Lottie and Leonore and Merritt. His three affairs before her. But no, she's running off to be in this other world. This world of art and dreams. In France, Ernst paints a picture of Carrington called Leonora in the Morning Light, with Carrington emerging from a dark, bizarre forest into a beautiful, calm clearing. She paints a picture of him in a robe with a fishtail, standing in an icy landscape, holding a lantern with a horse trapped inside. Ernst could be her father, in so many ways and she knows it. In 1940 when Ernst is arrested by the French for being German Carrington panics and mourns and then she packs his passport and a few other things into a suitcase with a little brass plate that says Revelation on it and she leaves for Spain. It's hard to say what breaks her, exactly. The loss of Ernst, or the loss of family, or the loss of Europe as war is breaking out, or all the above. It certainly doesn't help that her father sends his goons to find her. Carrington's father owns a string of textile mills, but also heads a rather ominous-sounding conglomerate called the Imperial Chemical Companies, with agents all over the world at his beck and call. And he sends them after her, to help her into Spain at first, and then to force her into the clinic. She starts to conflate her father and his men with Hitler. Hitler and co., she calls them. These men who won't let her be. She comes to despise her family's influence so much that when her old family nanny is sent to Spain by submarine to see how she's doing in the place she calls the madhouse, Carrington wants nothing to do with her. The nanny watches her get her third dose of cardiozole, tied down to the bed. And she cries out, What have they done to you? What have they done to you? But Carrington sends her away. And then, when another agent of her father's arrives to ship her to a different clinic, this time in South Africa... Well, Carrington decides she needs to escape. But she needs a way out. 
And so one afternoon, when she's out with her nurse, she suddenly finds a way out. She looks across the room and locks eyes with a man she has met once before in France. A friend of Pablo Picasso named Renato Ledoux. Handsome, sympathetic, and Mexican. Carrington's escape goes something like this. She and her nurse have gone to Lisbon in Portugal to meet with her father's men, the men who want to ship her to Cape Town. And one day, she's out at a cafe with her nurse, and she makes some excuse to go to the bathroom. And instead, she slips out the back door, gets in a taxi, and goes to the Mexican embassy, where Renato Ledoux is working. By now, it's 1941, and Lisbon in 1941 is a little like Casablanca, in 1941, a place where people are waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting for some way out. And so Carrington and Ledoux wait and wait. And while they're waiting, they get married. So when they finally do leave Lisbon on July 11, on the SS Exeter, Carrington is on the passenger list as Leonora Ledoux. Occupation, none. Now, you're wondering what happens to Ernst. Well, while Carrington and Ledoux are waiting in Lisbon, Carrington runs into Ernst. He's waiting to get out of Europe, too. And he, too, is not alone. He's taken up with Peggy Guggenheim, the art-curious heiress. And yet, when he finds out that Carrington and Ledoux plan to marry, he's furious. He calls Ledoux an inferior man. And it's this egotistical tirade unleashed over a few different visits that convinces Carrington she's making the right move. As it happens, Ernst and Guggenheim fly out of Lisbon two days after Carrington and Ledoux leave on their boat. And both couples settle in New York. And neither of them stay together for long. Okay, let's skip ahead a bit. 1942, Carrington and Ledoux moved to Mexico City, which is much smaller then, even smaller if you're an artist. Carrington doesn't waste any time getting her new life started. She looks up some acquaintances from her Paris days, expat artists, and soon she divorces Ledoux and a circle forms around her and some other women artists. The Spanish painter Remedio Zvaro and the Hungarian photographer Katy Horna. 
Now, at the center of the Mexico City art scene is Diego Rivera, right? And his wife, Frida Kahlo. And, well, they're not terribly enamored of these new arrivals. Kahlo calls them those European bitches. There's a story about Carrington at Rivera and Kahlo's second wedding in 1947. Rivera supposedly asked Carrington who she is. And she says, Leonora Carrington. And who are you? And Rivera says, Montezuma. Which you probably thought would be the end of it. But she replies, Really? I thought you were dead. Well, why wouldn't Kahlo and her friends feel a bit put off by these well-off white people who can cross an ocean for their freedom and still feel at home on the other side? In 1942, the year Carrington moves to Mexico, she paints a picture that seems to reference her old life called Green Tea, a classically English landscape with a young woman who appears to be mummified. By 1945, she's painting a picture called The House Opposite, with women moving through floors, changing into trees, and mixing a mysterious potion in a cauldron. By 1947, only five years after landing in Mexico, she's divorced and remarried with two kids. As you no doubt know, she writes to a gallery owner in New York, I am married again, and entirely happy, and perhaps for the first time in my life, living in peace. André Breton, the French surrealist writer, called Mexico City the surrealist place par excellence. Carrington seems to agree. She and her Mexico friends study alchemy and the Popolva, the great epic of Mayan mythology. And they create potions learned from Curandera, the local healers. And they smoke the marijuana that Carrington grows on a roof. When her first major solo show opens in New York in 1948, the reviewer from Time magazine notes that the walls are positively hopping with demons, creatures with hair and horns, who might have emerged from medieval nightmares if they weren't right there in midtown Manhattan in the post-war boom, like they'd simply gotten off the subway. It may be surreal to everyone else, but to Carrington it's as real as anything else in her mind. I'm an old mole, she says in 1945, who swims beneath the cemeteries. And, like a mole, for a long time, she disappears. For about 25 years, in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s, Carrington is largely under the radar. She seems to be living in New York and then Chicago, with very little money. But who knows? 
She has become famous in Mexico. Everywhere else, not so much. Eventually, her family back in England basically forgets all about her. In 2006, a young relative from England goes to Mexico to find her. Joanna Moorhead only learned about Carrington a few months before, and now she can't believe she's related to this artist, the last great surrealist still alive. She flies to Mexico City, gets in a taxi, and gives the driver an address. She's taken to a neighborhood that's seen better days. Mansions with peeling paint and graffiti on the walls. And she finds a house with no windows on the ground floor and a heavy wooden door. She rings the bell and the door opens. And there's a small old woman dressed almost entirely in black. The woman is wearing a sweater and a small bag with cigarettes and a lighter. It's cold inside the house, even though it's Mexico. And Moorhead asks, Prim? It's not Prim, the woman says. I left Prim behind a long time ago. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. You can find us on Amazon Music or your smart speaker. Leave us a review at Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.